Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Kennard Brown speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God Biblical Instructional Program. Today is oct- well, actually not October, November 5th, 2011. And we're moving along here. And uh, the title of this Bible study is Jewish Traditions. And you'll see the reason why I chose this topic for this Bible studies. We're still in this series of Bible studies, which began officially uh, last week. And we're going to focus on how we worship the, the Most Holy God in spirit and in truth. I changed the title a little bit. But that's what this Bible study is going to focus on. And it's very important to understand Jewish traditions. Uh, Any religion has traditions. The Catholics have their traditions. The Protestants have their traditions, etc. The Muslims have their traditions. So it is with Jewish tradition. But Yeshua, he stated something very significant about Jewish traditions. And if you want to turn to John chapter 4 again, this in the English Standard Version. Uh, we'll get a little background here. This is the incident w- with the woman, and he asked her to, to give him some water and, and so forth. Okay, so in John chapter 4, verse 21, it says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. So what he was doing is prophesying what happened in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Son, could you get me that Bible over there, please? The red Bible. Thank you. Verse 22 of John chapter 4. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from who? The Muslims? The Buddhists, the Catholics, the Protestants, any other religion? No. From the Jews. So that's the reason why we're going to focus on today Jewish traditions. 
because let's let's use our brains here. Every religion has tradition. Every religion has tradition. And let's understand what the word tradition means anyway, because I, I don't think people really it just popped in my mind that we needed to find what that word means because people just don't understand what tradition is really is. So let's let me look up uh, just look at the scripture here and then tradition right here. All right, tradition means to deliver and teaching. A tradition, doctrine, or injunction delivered or communicated from one to another, whether divine, uh, human, whether divine or human, the expression and tradition of the elders occurs. Okay? So, that's what tradition is. It's a teaching or doctrine. And it can either be divine or it can be from a human being. So that's that's what tradition is. And we all have our traditions. Uh, there's no such thing as a religion without tradition. Now, when we go back to what Yeshua stated again, or Jesus, that's his Hebrew name, back in the English Standard Version of the Bible. He stated again, and this is a very significant statement, folks. Verse 22, you worship what you do not. So, He's telling the Samaritan, who was considered a Gentile back then and still is today. says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Now, Yeshua is putting himself into a category or a group of people. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So what Yeshua is telling anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear, we better do some research, some thorough research and study the Jews. I don't know if many of you listening to me who claim to be Christians, you are following a Jewish person. Uh, the Bible states that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, yesterday he was a Jew, today he's a Jew, and tomorrow he'll be a Jew, okay? So he's a Jew. And if your Lord and Master and Savior is telling you that salvation is from the Jews, then I think it would be wise for you to find out all you can about the Jews. I've been doing that since 2004, and I'm still doing it today. And many people say, well, most of the Jews don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. That's true. But remember, just like Mark Blitz brought out beautifully in Romans chapter 11, it says that Israel, which consists of Judah and Ephraim, or uh, the tribe of Judah and also the rest of the ten tribes, who, again, I have to keep on saying this because I know most people don't know this, unfortunately, but uh, the word is getting out, that the ten tribes of Israel consists of the territories of the United States, the British Commonwealth of Nations, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa, Australia, and the countries in Northwestern Europe, geographically. Of course, anyone that accepts Jesus Christ or Yeshua Messiah as Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior, 
and you welcome uh, you recognize him as or welcome him as the king of Israel that's who he is then you become a part of Israel and that means you must do what that king of Israel wants you to do which is obey Israel's rules and regulations and laws so again Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So, worship has something to do, folks, with the Jews. I gave this Bible study (laughs) to some folks, and they got offended by it. And I hope you don't get offended by it. This is your Lord and Savior's words, in red, in the King James Version of the Bible. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, is any religion perfect? No. Judaism isn't perfect either, but look, I've compared all the religions of the world, and Judaism by far is closest to uh, the true worship of God than any other religion, by far. Case in point, how do we get the Bible? The Masoretics, who were Jews translated the uh, the text into what we have today. Without them, we wouldn't have a Bible. Most of the Bible, and I say most because Luke, uh, I think he was a Gentile before he became a Jew or whatever, but in most cases, the entire Bible was written by Jews or people that were taught by Jews. So we we can't discount the significance of the Jews first, um, folks. I think I need some water here. Be right back. They are very important. King David was a Jew. Moses was a Levite. But eventually the Levites became linked with the Jews. That's why the Jews say he was a Jew. Well, that's incorrect. He was originally a Levite and wasn't, stayed a Levite. And the Levites eventually linked with the Jews because they came back with uh, the Jews uh, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember in 586 B.C., the first temple was destroyed and they... Uh, after 70 years, according to the prophecy, they return along with the help of Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah, and they um, cleaned out the temple and, and uh, rebuilt the temple and so forth. And it became later on uh, King Harold had also made some improvements as well. And I was going to say it became the second temple, and that was destroyed in AD 70 one of the Jewish traditions that hopefully I'll cover today, Tisha B'Av celebrates that. And because we don't celebrate it, we don't really understand the significance of the temple being destroyed. That's another good Jewish tradition that hardly no one knows about other than the Jews. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating what God did, not celebrating, but acknowledging the destruction of the temple. Why was it destroyed? Because of the Jewish people and, and the Israel's sense that's why that's why and so we need to reflect on that and and realize what we did 
All right, so let's focus on that. Before I do that, I want to do the Torah readings here, summarize them, and then we're going to get back into this. Okay, well, we understand what the Lord said about salvations from the Jews. Why is that? And what are their good traditions? And I'm just going to summarize it. I just, If I was going to go over all their traditions, this would be like a longer Bible study than, than what it's going to be today. You're going to have to do research on your own and figure out which ones you want to incorporate. You must work out your own salvation. I'm just going to give you a guide. I'm going to break this down. I don't want to get over scholarly here. You know, the purpose of, of teaching is to to say things so people can understand. You know, I can easily get up here and just be arrogant about the knowledge that God has given me. I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is break things down so that you can easily understand and so that you can do your own research. That's what a good teacher does, whether they're teaching the Bible or anything else. Okay, so let's go over... Torah readings here. Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to Genesis 17, verse 27. I'm just going to summarize it because I'm doing a series of Bible studies today with the help of Habad, C as in cat, H-A-B-A-D dot org. It's a beautiful website. Uh, in particular, if you want to understand all the Jewish holidays and the traditions behind it, all you need to do is go, when you go to Habad dot org, go to where it says holidays, uh, the the menu bar on the left, and then you see all the descriptions of all the holidays, and they, and they really do a wonderful job at giving you a detailed description on how to celebrate these days. And, of course, if there's any conflicts with the Bible, then you don't do what they say. But if it's in line with the Bible, you do it. And I'm going to try to explain that today as well. That's how you, not only with the Jewish tradition, but any tradition that people claim to help you to worship the, the Most Holy God, you have to use the Bible as a guide to filter it out. Use the Bible as a filter to see whether or not it's something you should do or you shouldn't do. That's a part of working out your own salvation and dividing the word of truth. Okay. Now, see, with traditions, too, I hear, I, I, I've been around for years, people, that they look bored when they're going to worship services or whatever. And the thing about it is you need to find something that will motivate you to not think of God or worshiping God as boring. And when you understand the Jewish traditions, like me and my wife went to a Shabbat and my son, we went to a Shabbat celebration that they had, a Jewish people, uh, at the uh, Jewish Community Center. I went there, and it was beautiful. I mean, they really know how to celebrate the Shabbat. And maybe I have a program, well, I will have a program eventually on how to do that uh, using wholesome Jewish tradition to make it really a special day. Uh, one of the things that they do, they, they say a prayer uh, when the sun sets. They light candles. Um, and something, and I've I participated in this as well with Messianic uh, Gentile believers. Um, and 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 it's, it's beautiful when you do it that day, that way. And then they end end it also on a good note as well. So they really make it special. Um, some Jews they have sweet smelling incense that they normally wouldn't have um, in the house during the Shabbat. They really make it a, a joyful occasion. And again, there's nothing wrong with tradition that helps you obey 
and worship God properly. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Okay. Let's go to the current Parsha or Torah readings here. Uh, Genesis 12, verses 1, 17 to 27. I'm just going to summarize it. Courtesy of Chabad.org. Must give credit. All right, so it says, God speaks to Abraham, commanding him, Go from your land, from your birthplace, and from your father's house to the land which I show you. There God says he will be made into a great nation. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, accompanied by his nephew, Lot, journey to the land of Canaan, where Abraham builds an altar and continues to spread the message of a one God. A famine forces the first Jew, and he wasn't the first Jew. Okay, <laughs> He wasn't the first Jew. He wasn't a Jew at all. Okay, so he was not the first Jew. All right, so let's clarify that. That's a mistake by Chabad.org. But anyway, a famine forces Abraham to depart for Egypt, where beautiful Sarah is taken to Pharaoh's place. Abraham escapes death because they present themselves as brother and sister. Now keep in mind, when was the first Jew? When was the first Jew created? Okay, well, let's go back. Jacob had 12 sons, right? One of them was Judah, which many people understand means Jew. Okay, so that's the first Jew, not Abraham. Okay, so let's let's get the facts straight. But anyway, and you can prove this too if you don't think I know what I'm talking about, look at Genesis chapter 49. It's a prophecy about those 12 tribes that applies to today. And Abraham was a prophet. And it talks about Judah, one of the tribes, and, and what was prophesied of that tribe. So anyway, a famine forces Abraham to depart for Egypt where beautiful Sarai is taken to Pharaoh's place. Abraham escapes death because they present themselves as brother and sister, which was a slight lie. A plague prevents the Egyptian king from touching her and convinces him to return her to Abraham and to compensate the brother revealed as husband with gold, silver, and, and cattle. Back in the land of Canaan, Lot separates from Abraham and settles in the evil city of Sodom. Here we go with Sodom again. Where he falls captive when the mighty armies of Chedorlaomer, Almar, I guess, C-H-E-D-O-R-L-A-O-M-E-R, Chedorlaomer, and his three allies conquered the five cities of the Sodom Valley. Abraham sets out with a small band to rescue his nephew, defeats the four kings, and is blessed by Melchizedek, or the righteous king of Salem, or Jerusalem. God seals a covenant between the parts with Abraham in which the exile and persecution of the people of Israel is foretold, and the Holy Land is bequeathed to them as the eternal heritage. Still childless, ten years after their arrival in the land, Sarai tells Abraham to marry her maidservant Hagar, which was a sin. He shouldn't have did that. He committed adultery. Hagar conceives, becomes insolent toward her mistress, and then flees when Sarai treats her harshly. An angel convinces her to return and tells her that her son will father a populous nation. I mean, some people don't consider it as adultery. It is sin. Okay, he 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 fornicated, which is a sexual sin, one way or the other. It was a sin. All right. So uh, an angel convinces her to return and tells her that her son will father a populous nation. Ishmael is born in Abraham's 86th year. So they didn't want to wait for God. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. They were being impatient. 
anyway. And you can't, whenever you're inpatient, in every single case that I know of personally, when you're inpatient, bad things happen to you. You have to let patients have his perfect work. That's a scripture in the uh, apostolic scriptures. And then you won't lack anything. But if you go and just be impatient and want to do things quickly before you're ready for it, then, you know, bad things will happen to you. And let's let's reflect a little bit about what happened here. <laughs> let's look at the prophecy about Ishmael. And you tell me this is not talking about the problem in the, in the Middle East today. Okay? This is because Abraham and Sarah did not want to wait. They didn't want to wait. They want to do things their way. So this is a big lesson I have to go over here because we better we better wait for things, folks. Because you, you bring sin, you know, you, you're going to get enough. Per, when you go, as the Master stated in Matthew chapter um, seven, verse thirteen to fourteen, and he used an analogy about a narrow gate, saying that this life that I'm living and very few other people are living. Uh, it's a hard road. It's a hard road, okay? And when you live this type of life, you don't need to add to the difficulties. You don't need to add to them. You're going to get enough of them. And one of the ways where you don't add to those difficulties is that you learn how to be patient. I need this. I need that. Well, if you can't afford it, you're going to have to wait for it. You're going to have to wait for it. If you can afford it, do it. But if you can't, wait for those things. I need a wife. I need a husband. All right? Well, you're going to have to be patient and wait for that husband or wife to come. You can't force that husband or wife to come into your life. You can't make somebody be your husband or wife. You have to be patient. and wait. I, I can use so many other examples. But we all have to learn how to be patient. It's very difficult for a lot of people. But I've learned over the years to, to be patient and learn how to be patient. There's some things I need now. I mean, they're not life-threatening things, but these are things that I know that I need to improve myself. But obviously, the father doesn't agree with the urgency of those needs. That's why I don't have them. <laughs> so I have to wait for him patiently. And he does give me these things at the time he thinks I need them, not at the time that I think. I've learned that lesson over the years. Uh, I hope you guys are listening to me, and I hope you learn the lesson. But anyway, let's get back to um, this example here of what happened, uh, the, the prophecy, uh, where he talked about Abraham here, if I can find it here. All right. There's the Torah readings again, and let me take Okay, here we go. I got to find a, a prophecy about Ishmael here, then I'll be able to tell you where is that here. Here we go. Genesis chapter sixteen. I'm going to start in verse seven, so you'll understand the. Uh, the background here. How much time do I have left here? Plenty of time. Okay. Genesis chapter 16, 
beginning in verse 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. This is when uh, Abraham uh, had uh, listened to his wife. And um, had let uh, Hagar go. Well, let's let's look at verse one here, of chapter sixteen. Let's get a full background of this. Now, Sarah, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, "Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in, my servant." In other words, have sex with my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So he listened to his wife. And, you know, sometimes men, wives don't know what the crap they're talking about and vice versa. So, you know, you both have to listen to one another and make sure that it makes sense what either you're saying. And if it doesn't, don't comply. So anyway, uh, and Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. So he went into Hagar, and this was polygamy, which is, you know, many people say, well, it was allowed, well, so what it was allowed? In every case, especially this one, polygamy caused a bunch of curses. All right? Verse 4, And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So already the curses began. Here she is looking at contempt, and she was the one that told him to do it. And how dare she getting angry about it? It doesn't make any sense, does it? But anyway, verse 5, And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. <laughs> it said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So, I mean, this this was just total wickedness here for her to be acting this way. All right, she It was her idea, her great idea, right? that uh, Abraham do this, and he did it, and then she's going out of her mind, okay? So this is what sin does, folks. When you sin, you, you don't start, you don't think straight. You're not thinking straight. And even though Abraham is called the father of the faithful, and if he was the father of the faithful, then obviously she is the mother of the faithful. And they weren't perfect, and they made some mistakes, but they didn't make as many as we are. You know, I'm sure that, but they did. And this is one of the greatest mistakes they ever made, perhaps the greatest. Okay, verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai, Sarai, or Sarai, I guess. I don't know. Verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. And listen to this prophecy, folks. You tell me this is not a definition of the Palestinian problem today. Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So that's what his word means. That's what his name means, rather. 
Verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now you tell me if this is not talking about the Palestinian problem today. Very accurate description of Arabs today. They are against every man, and everyone's hands against him. And he is dwelling with his kinsmen, and Arabs are related to Israelites. Okay? So, because they have the same father, Abraham. So this problem originated with this fornication, polygamous act. So I just wanted to point that out. So getting back to all right, so thirteen years later God changes Abraham's Abraham's name to Abraham, father of multitudes and Sarai's name to Sarah, princess. So husbands, I know it's difficult, but you need to try to treat your, your wives like princesses. And then vice versa. You wives need to learn how to treat your husbands like a prince. Or, the example of the book of Esther, you should treat your wives like a queen. And husbands, you should treat your... Um, wait a minute. Husbands should treat your wives like queens. And wives, you should treat your husbands like kings. Okay? Prince or kings for women... Okay, or a princess or a queen as far as husbands treating their wives. All right? So that's that's the way it should be. Anyway. And promises that a son would be born to them from this child whom they should call Isaac will last. That's Isaac's name. That's what it means. Will stem the great nation for which God will establish his special bond. Abraham is commanded to circumcise himself. And this is really Interesting, after he did this, he circumcised himself, which was somewhat of a, some people think it was a punishment. To get him to understand, he shouldn't have did that. And boy, what a punishment. Anyway. And it's a sentence as a sign of the covenant or agreement between me and you. Remember, when you see covenant, it doesn't mean Ten Commandments. It means agreement. Okay? Agreement. Abraham immediately complied, circumcising himself and all the males of his household. He didn't have too much of a problem obeying God, folks. You know, that's why he considered Abraham his friend. Unfortunately, a lot of modern-day Israelites today have a problem. When I mean Israelites, I'm not talking about just Jews. I'm talking about, again, uh, the United States, uh, Americans, Britons, Canadians, French folks countries in northwestern Europe, uh, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and anyone that claims to believe that the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, is their king, lord, and master, and savior. You also are part of Israel as well. Okay, so that's the um, Torah reading as far as uh, the first five books of the Bible in Genesis. Let's go to the Torah which is the prophet section. And 
courtesy of Chabad.org. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, to Isaiah 41, verse 16. The Haftar for this week discusses Abraham's journey to the land of Canaan at God's behest and touches upon Abraham's miraculous battle against the four kings, both of which are described in this week's Torah reading. Uh, we're going to cover uh, Sodom and Gomorrah next week. The prophet Isaiah addresses Israel's complaint. My way of serving God has been ignored by the Lord, and for my God my judgment passes unrewarded. Isaiah reminds Israel of the Creator's greatness. The time will come when he will give the tired strength, and to him who has no strength he will increase strength. Use shall become tired and weary, and young men shall stumble. But those who put their hope in the Lord shall renew their vigor. They shall raise wings as eagles. They shall run and not weary. They shall walk and not tire. Nevertheless, there is no comprehension of his wisdom, and as such, at times we cannot understand why he chooses to delay the reward of the righteous. The Hator then turns its attention to the idolatrous nations of the world. Isaiah reminds them of Abraham's greatness, how... After arriving in Canaan, he pursued and defeated four mighty kings. The island saw and feared. The ends of the earth quaked. Nevertheless, the nations who witnessed these miracles did not abandon their ways. The idol craftsman strengthened the smith, the one who smooths the idol with the hammer, strengthened the one who wields the sledgehammer. The one who glues his coating says, it is good, and he strengthened it with nails that it should not move. God promises the Jewish nation to reward them for their loyalty to God, and I would say anybody uh, that believes in Yeshua Messiah, he will reward. He said, Do not fear, for I am with you. Be not discouraged, for I am your God. Behold, all those incensed or angry at you shall be ashamed and confounded. Those who quarreled with you shall be as naught and be lost. This applies to anybody, again, who believes uh, in the true God, whose Son and, and Messiah is uh, Yeshua, or Jesus. All right, so that's the Hattori reading for today. And what other readings do we have here to go over before we... Okay, Romans chapter 4, which is a pretty interesting chapter. And it talks about um, Abraham here. Let's go over it here. Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? In other words, the circumcised are Jewish people, the uncircumcised are Gentiles. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Abraham was a Gentile, folks. That's the truth of the matter. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, without becoming a Jew. 
so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Now, this is interesting because Abraham was not a Jew, folks. He was not a Jew. No, so no wonder he's using this as an example, Abraham, about the circumcision, which is a Jewish idiom in this context for being a Jew. And uncircumcised is a Jewish idiom to mean that you're a Gentile. So anyway, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised or becoming a Jew so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Circumcision also is God is more concerned about circumcision of the heart, okay, getting the wickedness out. That's what circumcision represents. It's not so much becoming a Jew. The Jewish ritual, even back in the first century, was, okay, well, for you Gentiles to be saved, you must become a Jew. So you have to go through this ritual, this Jewish ritual, which they still do today, by the way, of um, circumcision to become a Jew. And that's nowhere in the Bible. That's a Jewish tradition, a bad one, I would say, uh, where you have to get circumcised to become a Jew. Now, the Torah does state that you must get circumcised, but you do it the, the Abraham way, okay? Um, during the eighth day, each male should be circumcised. They, they do that in the United States. They circumcise. I don't know if they do it at, at the eighth day. I think they do it, right, Sheree? The majority of hospitals do it uh, the right way, the eighth day. Okay, well, yeah, I know my son was done the right way, so on the eighth day, right? You don't know, okay? I thought you told me it was the eighth day. But anyway, the point of the matter is that they are circumcised, okay? And where do we get the idea from? Okay, that's another sign that we are part of the, the, the people of God as well. Um, many Americans get circumcised. But anyway, uh, verse 12, And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law of the Torah, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, and it brings wrath if you don't obey it. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's what I just meant there. So that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace or favor and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He's the father of those 12 tribes, folks, and he's also the father of the Arabs. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours too but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgresses, or trespasses, 
and raised for our justification. So, yes, uh, Abraham, his righteousness had a lot to do with faith, but remember in James chapter 2, faith must have works. Let's go there here. Let's get the complete picture here. James. Uh, one of the brothers of Jesus, half-brother. Still brother, though. James chapter 1. James chapter 2, rather. I'm sorry. James chapter 2. Verse 21. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay. Justified by works, also justified by faith. Righteousness. And you get the righteousness from the master, not from yourself, because our righteousness are considered filthy rags. Okay. Uh, I wanted to discuss something. Um, Could you get that piece of paper there off the, the bookcase? Right there on top. Yeah. Wanted to discuss something. This is important here. Um, this is an article from Barna. They do research on how people's attitudes are about religion. And this article, I'm just going to read a little bit of it here. It says, 70 million Americans feel held back by their past, which is sad, but true. Uh, November 3rd, 2011. And let me see if I can find out. Okay, this is from the Barner Group, B-A-R-N-A-G-R-O-U-P, 2011. Just Google uh, 70 million Americans feel held back by their past, and you'll be able to find the article. I just want to give proper credit. November 3, 2011. says, in the middle of the economic recession and the Occupy Wall Street protests, residents' economic mood and outlook has been well documented. Yet underlying emotional and identity factors are often overlooked, such as whether Americans feel they are fulfilling their own personal potential or not. A new study by Barner Group examines these kind of indicators, looking at how Americans think about their lives these days. Four characteristics of millions of residents emerged from the survey. It says one-third of Americans are struggling to live to their fullest potential. It says one out of every three adults in this country say they are not living life to their fullest potential, including those who say... They are not at all, 6% or not much, 26%. A slim majority of adults, 57%, feel they are mostly fulfilling their potential, while about 1 out of 8, 12% feel completely fulfilled. Only 12% feel completely fulfilled. That's sad. Those most likely to feel they are fulfilling their potential, including elders, include elders ages 65 plus, practicing Christians and Bible, Bible readers. Oh, so that, that means that when you read that Bible, you, you start to to feel that you're fulling, uh, fulfilling your potential. But if you don't read the Bible, because the Bible is about fulfilling your potential, and if you don't want to read it, then you're going to feel empty anyway. So. It says, interestingly, education was correlated with fulfillment, but only to a certain point. College graduates were some of the least dissatisfied, but they were also some of the least likely to feel completely fulfilled. A similar pattern emerged with regard to personal economics. 
The wealthiest Americans were some of the most likely to give extreme responses, either very fulfilled or very unfulfilled. The number two, I'm not going to read all this, uh, it says 70 million Americans feel held back by their past. Nearly 70 million Americans are dealing with emotional conflict. One-sixth of Americans are wrestling with the role of church and religion. I think I'll read that. It says, in total, 15% of Americans said their experiences with religion have caused them to question God, a sentiment or feeling that was most common among 20-somethings, college graduates, unmarried adults, non-Christians, and unchurched adults. Similarly, 16% of Americans said they have been hurt by experiences in churches. This perception was most common among women, boomers, a generation between 1946, one year after the destruction or the uh, the uh, detonation of the uh, atomic bomb over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, between 1946 and 1964, and divorced adults. Here's the conclusion here. It says, David Kinnaman, president of Barner Group, directed the survey. He pointed out, in recent weeks, the Occupy Wall Street movement has focused on the economic gap between the wealthiest 1% of the population and the remaining 99%. As others have observed, this movement reflects a mix of anti-institutionalism and disillusionment with the economy, government, and financial industry. But perhaps Americans' growing dissatisfaction with institutions is more influenced than they realize by their own personal expectations and experiences. While people are increasingly skeptical of eternal forces, or external forces, like religion and government, the research shows that internal doubts about fulfillment, faith, emotional, and personal history significantly define millions of the nation's residents. So I think that's a good summary of what's going on here. People just have a, a great disconnect, and that disconnect is because they don't have God in their lives. Let's look at the Hosea, the prophet. Hosea prophesied of this, Hosea chapter 4. This is our state right now. This is prophecy 2011. This is prophecy for the 21st century, folks. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Again, Israel's us, folks. We have the most Bible distribution um, in the history of the world. In this country, in Canada, and in, um, in Britain, over there in uh, the nation of Israel. We're Israel. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, which means the descendants of Israel, right? We are the children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. In other words, very few people know of the true God of this Bible. And I just read to you that in the Barner Group, if you just look at that website, not too many people read and study the Bible. They don't. And God knows that. He prophesied of it through his prophet Hosea. Verse 2, there is swearing. Yes, there is. There is lying. There is murder, stealing, and committing adultery all across this nation. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And whenever I read that verse, I think about all the abortions that are allowed, over 1.2 million every year in this country the leading cause of death. Second is, is uh, heart disease. Verse 3. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Look at all those dead fish because of that oil spill. 
by BP, a filthy rich oil company that originates uh, in the British Commonwealth of Nations. Verse 4, Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priests or ministers of today. You shall stumble by day, the prophet shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. Now, this is the verse I wanted to get to, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. The population of the world has reached 7 billion people, October 31st. And he's saying that the more the population increases, the more they sin against him. Verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it should be like people, like priests, I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine and new wine, which take away the understanding. When, when you sin, when you drink too much wine, uh, you, you, can't, you don't have the ability to understand things. So that's what he's saying here. So, you know, you can read the rest of this, but it's a prophecy. It, it applied back then. It applies today. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 says what happens. But let's turn there again. Let's understand what Solomon stated here. And this is, helps you understand prophecy. In a lot of cases, dual. The social conditions is dual. Maybe the exact same event in the exact same way. It's not going to happen, but the social conditions are going to be similar. Ecclesiastes 1. Verse 9 says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. So that let's understand that when you, whenever you read prophetic scriptures. And you can definitely apply the social, when I mean by social conditions, adultery has always been <laughs> around, folks. Okay? Homosexuality has always been around. Polygamy is still around, right? That's what I mean by social conditions. Those social conditions exist today as it did back in biblical times. So that's what I'm talking about. All right. Okay, we have a minute and nine left. And, you know, it just amazes me. People can spend two and a half to three hours looking at their favorite movie. But when someone's talking about the Bible, <laughs> they just, uh, I don't know, they, they just don't focus like they should. And Yeshua stated that his words are eternal life. When you look at a movie, whatever you see, and those words certainly are eternal life unless you're looking at a movie that we look at uh, frequently or, or consistently, um, the Gospel of John, which I believe is the best Jesus movie ever made because it's from a word-from-word translation from the New International Version 
translation, I suggest you get it. They did the best they could to try to make it Jewish and include Jewish background. So those are the kind of movies that I suggest that, that you look at, those type of movies. Not these movies that contribute to blowing your brain away, literally. Okay, so we're going to continue this series, How Do We Worship the Most Holy God in Spirit and Truth? And right now we're going to focus on Jewish traditions. And... Are they all bad for us, and, or or can they help us worship the true Elohim, or God? And based on the statement that, that Jesus stated, of course they can. Because why would he say salvation is of the Jews? Now, keep in mind that of all the Israel, all the kings in, in the Middle East or in, in Palestine, um, like the king, if you compare the, the kings of, of Israel, because remember, because of Solomon's sin, the nation of Israel was split into tribes. Uh, you, you had a division. You had the tribe of Judah, and then Benjamin joined them. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin joined them, and then eventually Levi. And then you had the other tribes. You had the house of Israel, and you had the house of Judah. So there was a separation at that particular period of time. And... That that was a very significant thing that happened. There were ten Jewish kings, righteous kings, and no kings uh, of the house of Israel that were considered righteous. And these were all Jewish kings. Okay, of course Solomon, I would consider him one of the righteous, even though he stated that he went astray, but indications are perhaps that he may have repented in the book of Ecclesiastes, especially at the end when he states that here's the whole matter, fear God and keep his commandments. So uh, it's a possibility that he repented. Not a certainty, but it's a possibility. Of course, King David, Hezekiah, uh, were considered uh, righteous kings, Jews. Uh, Yeshua is a Jew. Um, he stated that well, let's turn to the scripture here about um, his disciples and their role in the kingdom. And they were all Jews, by the way. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, well, actually, let's go Matthew 19, verse 27. It says, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then? Well, we have, and in Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will have, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So, the new world, that's going to arrive here soon. And it looks like it's going to arrive here in the 21st century. Either that or the likelihood of us existing. It's not very likely. It's going to consist of Jewish rulership. Jesus, the ultimate Jew, will rule this world as the Messiah. And then underneath him will be his disciples. And they're going to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're going to have a Jewish hierarchy. And uh, 
to really prove this, well, I've already proved it, but to, to put an exclamation point on it, look at Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8, starting in verse 22. This is in the English Standard Version of the Bible. It says, Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days two, ten men, not two men, ten men, from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Salvation is of the Jews, folks. That's what your Bible says, if you truly believe it. So, Let's turn to Acts chapter 28, verse 17. Acts 28, verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, and this is Paul speaking, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, the customs of our fathers, that involves the many Jewish traditions. So, Shaul, or Paul, is stating that he did not go against any of the Jewish customs. Now, of course, he didn't go against any of the Jewish customs that did not make the law of God of none effect. All right, so I just wanted to focus on that one scripture there to show you that Paul kept the Jewish traditions, many of them. And this word um, in the original Greek, it means ethos, and it means custom, usual practice or manner, whether established by law or otherwise. Okay, and so he didn't do, and he did not do, he did not go against any of the traditions. So that's very important to understand that. All right, now let's look where else this word is used to fully understand. what he was saying here in Acts 6 verse 14 for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs with Moses delivered us again traditions traditions Acts 21 verse 21 And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Again, these are the, the traditions. The traditions. Acts 26, verse 3. Especially because I know thee to be an expert in all the customs and questions which are among the Jews, here we go again. He was talking to King Agrippa at the time. And again, he's, he's talking about traditions and customs. Acts 
So it's very important to, to understand the context of, of what this is talking about and that uh, it's really nothing wrong with any tradition as long as it doesn't violate. And then Acts 25, verse 16, let's take a look at this word is used here. It says, to, to whom, oh, let me look at it here. Uh, I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met with accusers. So now you understand the context of this. Uh, any religion has traditions, including the Jewish religion. So I just wanted to point that out. Now, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 15. It says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, this is written by Paul. Oh, Shaul, and he stated in Acts chapter 28, verse 17, that he didn't go against the Jewish traditions, the righteous ones, obviously, okay? So he said, hold to the traditions. I want you to understand what he said there. So if Shaul, who said, follow me because I follow Christ, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, I'll turn there in a minute then if Paul kept most of the Jewish traditions, and I'm going to show, prove to you today that Jesus did too, then we should. Am I making sense? All right? If you don't have traditions based on your religion, religion will be boring, folks. you got to have some type of rituals or, or something to inspire you to do it. Just like when you play basketball or, or baseball, right? I mean, you, you, there's certain ways or methodology that you do to enjoy the game, right? When you, when you get married, right, it's not just two people just getting married, right? I mean, there's other things involved, like little music, right? Uh, a female dresses a certain way, a male dresses a certain way, right? You, you have a meal afterwards, right? I mean, it's, it's a festive occasion, right? It's tradition involved in it, right? Right, Shri? In a marriage. Um, life would be boring if you didn't have traditions. So traditions is not always bad. Tradition means use your practice or manner, whether established by law or otherwise. Now, when it's by otherwise, we got to make sure that when it comes to the, the God's law, that it doesn't make the law of God an effect. Let's let's look at what the Master said about this to understand. So I think uh, we start here in Matthew chapter 15. Verse 15, verse 1. Then came Jesus... Then came to Jesus the scribes, and these are the, the Torah teachers, those who are, you know, intellectually uh, high on the scale, and Pharisees, which were of Jews, and saying, Why do thy disciples, uh, I'm reading in the King James, let me go back to English Standard Version. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So this is the tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat. In verse 3, how... 
He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Verse 4. For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or, or his mother what you should have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made the, the void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said that this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, where did he get this from? He got this from Isaiah chapter 29. I read this to a Jewish rabbi before, and I don't know if he was shocked or whatever, but I read it to him. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. I said, this is what Jesus quoted. Isaiah 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, Because his people draw near with me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Okay? And that's, unfortunately, we have many traditions in any religion, in Judaism as well, where the tradition is more important than what God has stated in the law or, or, or his commandments or his teachings, or it makes void those teachings, it pushes away those teachings. It's like you have one ridiculous teaching about the Gentiles only keeping seven commandments. And, and, and that doesn't make any sense. That's nowhere in the Bible. That is a Jewish tradition that makes the teachings of God of none effect. And we are not, according to our Jewish Messiah, we are not commanded to obey that. It's very important to understand there in that context. Okay, so. Let's turn to Acts chapter 24. Beginning in verse 11. Here we go again in the context of worship again. Acts chapter 24, verse 11. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. This is Shaul, Paul speaking. He went to Jerusalem to worship. Verse 12. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. This is what Shaul said, and yet people are teaching that he did away with the law. He did not, folks. And this is in the context, of, again, context meaning background, of worship. Worshiping involves doing it according to the way. The way what? The way of the Lord. The way the Messiah walked. He worships God by believing everything laid down by the law of the Torah and written in the prophets. That's how you worship in spirit and in truth. You know, I can't make that any clearer than when I'm making it. Verse 17 of Acts 24. 
Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation, which is charity, and to present offerings. So that's also a part of worship. We can't give animal sacrifices today because the temple is not built. But in Hebrews chapter 13 and other places, it states that we should give spiritual sacrifices. How do you give spiritual sacrifices? By giving and sharing and helping people. That's what the sacrifices also pointed to. That's a part of worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what does Shaul do? Let's go over this again. Number one, he worshipped the true God. How did he worship the true God? By obeying everything in the, the Torah, the teachings of God, and the prophets. He gave alms. He gave charity to people. And also he gave offerings. He, he uh, did what he was supposed to do in that area. That all has something to do with worship, and he stated that he followed Christ. So obviously Christ did those things as well. Your Messiah did that. All right. Now, we're going to look at some traditional Jewish days that there's absolutely nothing wrong with keeping. And it has everything to do to help you worship the true God. Let's look at Purim. Now, this is found in the Bible. And how much time do I have left here? 50 minutes. All right. This is found in the Bible, folks. So let's turn to Esther. Esther chapter 9. And this is a, a good Jewish tradition that is celebrated every year. And it's like I said, it's in the Bible. Actually, everything I'm telling you here is in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible as far as listed of, of the holy days that we are commanded to take off. But it's still a good Jewish tradition. And I read to you that Jewish tradition should be kept. Uh, Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. What is wrong with observing this day, folks? It has everything to do with the concept of sacrifice and giving and sharing and giving alms, doesn't it? Doesn't it, Sheree? So what? what is the wrong with celebrating what God did through Esther and Mordecai and the rest of the Jewish people at this time. They were being persecuted, and God delivered them. So this is a celebration of God's deliverance. And how do they celebrate? By feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. 
that is a beautiful tradition to keep. So much so that God inspired Esther, or whoever wrote the book of Esther, probably Esther, to um, do this. Verse 23. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. Verse 24. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, this is the type of the anti-Messiah. The type of the anti-Messiah is Haman, another type of the anti-Messiah, folks. All right? Had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast per, that is, cast lots to crush and destroy them. Verse 25. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and what had happened to them. Let me look up the original meaning of this word here. Okay, what is the matter with my software program? Okay, here we go. Okay, pure means lot. That's by means of a broken piece. That's what it means. So it kind of categorized what Haman tried to do, or Haman tried to do. At this time, lots were called Purim. So this festival is called Purim. So I just described what I just did. <laughs> anyway, looked it up. Anyway, Mordecai wrote a letter and told the Jews to celebrate this festival. And so the Jews started a custom, custom, Custom. All right, here we go. Tradition. I want to look at this word up here. Said this manner. All right. So custom. All right, so verse 27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring to all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. That These days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disguise, or disuse rather. Uh, these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants, which is interesting. So that's the reason why they continue to do it to this day, folks. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the king of Assyrius in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, at, at the right time, that's what it means, 
as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. Lamenting. They're lamenting. Verse 32, the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in the writing, and yeah, it's recording in this writing, in her, in her own book. Okay, so uh, th- this is uh, significant, folks. Uh, this is something that should be uh, celebrated. It's in the Bible, and there's no reason why you shouldn't. There's no reason why you shouldn't. And I'm sure that Yeshua also celebrated this day. It has nothing to do, there's no violation against the Word of God. None whatsoever. Okay, so that's uh, Purim. And that is uh, celebrated every year. And I suggest that uh, if you want to follow the example of Yeshua and also Shaul, who followed Yeshua, then you should celebrate Purim. Next one is Hanukkah, which is another significant tradition that you need to be celebrating. Purim and Hanukkah gives you a preview of what's going to happen in the Great Tribulation. That's the reason why you need to celebrate both days, because both of these events that caused the origination of Purim and Hanukkah has something to do with persecution of the truth, persecution of wanting to obey because you're obeying the laws of God. You're being persecuted because of that. We need to learn and be reminded of what happened and how these people overcame that persecution, how the Jews overcame the persecution of being hated because they want to keep the laws of God. These two days teaches us and reminds us of that. And it also helps us to understand what's going to happen in the future. That's why they must be kept. John chapter 10. People who don't want to keep these days are just running away from what's going to happen to them in the future. And I'm sure that God's not going to be pleased if you don't want to keep these days that are biblical. They're totally biblical. And people try to use the excuse, well, it's not commanded. Well, it may not be commanded, but it's suggested. It really is. And we should walk as our master walked. In John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, that's a commandment, to walk as he walked. Let's 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 look at that first before I, I read this, so you don't think I'm I'm talking crazy. First John chapter two verse six. Well, actually, I'm going to read it in the context here. First John chapter two, first John chapter two, verse one. First John chapter two verse one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, or Yeshua Messiah, the righteous. Verse 2, he is is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. So it's not just the Jews, but it's for everyone. Verse 3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. You don't know God if you don't keep his commandments. I just read you the prophecy in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. You don't know God unless you keep his commandments. Verse 4, 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Again, we must worship in spirit and in truth. If you don't obey him, you don't have the truth in you. Plain and simple as that. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And for him to state to the Samaritan that you don't know what you worship for salvation is of the Jews, obviously he kept some or most of the Jewish traditions. He kept all of the Jewish traditions that did not conflict with the law of God. I know that. I don't even have to ask him that. Because Shaul did it, and he stated that he followed Yeshua's example. Okay? So no one can prove to me out of the scriptures that we should not be keeping the Jewish traditions that Shaul and Yeshua did. Can they? Can they, son? No. Now, if they want to go and twist the scriptures to their own destruction, as Peter prophesied that would happen with many of Shaul's or Paul's epistles, then they can do that. But twisting the scriptures is not the truth. Okay, where are we now? John chapter 10. So let's take a look at Hanukkah. And if I don't get through, we'll continue on next week. Got 38 minutes left. I want to take my time here. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Starting in verse 22. I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible because it says the Feast of Dedication. I want I want the word to be there for you to understand. Okay? So, in the complete Jewish Bible version, it says, Then came Hanukkah in Jerusalem, or Jerusalem. It was winter. And Yeshua was walking around inside the temple area in Solomon's... Um, okay, I need to go to the English version for this. <laughs> uh, English Standard Version. The um, Colonnade of Solomon. All right, so I'm going to stop there. And I'm going to read a commentary here. It's called, and I should highly suggest you get this book. I mean, this book is awesome. The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Complete and Unabridged in One Volume, is by Alfred Edersheim. He was a Messianic Jew, and he wrote so many books on, on helping you understand the background of uh, the Jews from a messianic uh, perspective, because he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. So I would recommend you get this book to to uh, understand the background of the Gospels. And what I like about this book, too, you can look at any... He has, I think, most of the verses of the, the Gospels here. And you can look... He has, um, like, say, for instance, you can look up this Hanukkah event. And then he, you can go right and turn to a page where he talks about the background of what happened here. I had one individual ignorantly tell me, well, he was just there. Um, he, he doesn't understand what the Jews did back then as far as um, celebrating Hanukkah. And if you, you have to, that's why you have to understand, here we go again, salvations of the Jews, 
You have to understand their customs and mannerisms of how they obey the law. You have to understand how they live. You're not going to understand the Bible fully by just reading the Bible. I mean, you, you have to understand the historic background of the Jews to understand it. But anyway, I'm going to read on page 631 of this book. And again, I highly suggest you get this book and read it or use it as a reference. Okay, so I'm starting right here. It says, At that feast, or about two months after he had quitted the city, we find Christ once more in Jerusalem and in the temple. His journey thither seems indicated in the third gospel and is at least implied in the opening words with which St. John prefaces his narrative of what happened on that occasion. Okay, as we think of it, there seems special fitness presently to be pointed out in Christ spending what we regard as the last anniversary season of his birth in a temple at that feast. Well, that's, he thinks that Jesus Christ was born around December. I, I totally disagree with him on that. I believe that he was born uh, on Sukkot, or near the festival of Sukkot. But anyway, it was not of biblical origin, but had been instituted by Judas Maccabees. He's talking about the festival dedication or Hanukkah. In 164 B.C., when the temple, which had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, which is another type of, you have, um, what's the guy's name? Hanan, right? Haman. And then you have also uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And they're both types of the Antimessiah. All right, so... It was a biblical origin had been instituted by Judas Maccabees in 164 B.C. when the temple, which had been de desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, was much more purified and rededicated to the service of Yahweh. This is uh, found in 1 Maccabees chapter 6, verse 52 to 59, which is not scripture, but is, uh, I would say, um, writings, Jewish writings to help you understand the Bible. Accordingly, it was designated as a dedication of the altar, 1 Maccabees chapter 6, verse 56 and 59. That's why it was called the Feast of Dedication. Josephus, in Antiquities, chapter 12, uh, I think chapter 7, oh, ch chapter, tw oh, yeah, chapter 12, verse 7, calls it the lights from one of the principal observances of the feast, though he speaks in a hesitating language to the origin of the feast is connected with this observance, probably because while he knew he was ashamed to avow and yet afraid to deny his belief in the Jewish legend connected with it. It says, during the eight days of the feast, the series of Psalms knows as the Hallel, that Psalms chapter 113 to 118, was chanted in the temple. The people responded as at the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's what was going on when he was in the temple. They were doing that. That was, that was something that they did. That was a, a tradition that they did. So they were chanting Psalms 113 to 118 in the temple. Says other rites resemble those of the of the later feasts. Thus, originally the people appeared with palm branches. They appeared at the temple with palm branches. Second uh, Maccabees chapter ten verse seven. So let's let's turn, I'm going to read from Maccabees here and see exactly what they did on this day, so that you understand what Yeshua was going through, what he did in the temple, because 
I get people saying, well, hey, um, well, he was just there at the temple. Well, why was he there at the temple? I mean, let's understand why he was there at the temple before you assume that he didn't celebrate it. Okay. So let's read in Second uh, Maccabees chapter 10, verse 1. Now Maccabees and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple in the city. They tore down the altars that had been built in the public square by the foreigners and also destroyed the sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary and made another altar of sacrifice and striking fire out of flint. They offered sacrifices after the lapse of two years and they offered incense and lighted lamps and set out the bread of presents. When they had done this, they fell prostrate and implored the Lord that they might never again fall into such misfortunes but that if they should ever sin, they might be disciplined by him with forbearance and not be handed over to blasphemous and barbarous nations. It happened that on the same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned by the foreigners, the purification of the sanctuary took place, that is, on the 25th day of the same month, which was Shizlev. They celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the Festival of Booths. So similar to the Festival of Sukkot, they celebrated it. During the festival of booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals, therefore carrying ivy-wretch wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm. They offered hymns of thanksgiving, which I read to you with the uh, Psalms 113 to 118. They did that in the temple. And beautiful branches and also fronds of palm. They offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. They decreed by public edict, ratified by vote that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. Such then was the end of Antiochus, who was called Epiphanes. Okay, so that's how they did it every year. They purified the uh, the temple there. And let's get back to Edersheim's excellent book here that describes what really happened here. So he states right here, thus the two festivals, wait a minute, other rites resembled, okay, I already read that. This, however, does not seem to have been afterwards observed, while another rite, not mentioned in the book of Maccabees, that of illuminating the temple in private houses, became characteristic of the feast. Thus the two festivals, which indeed are put in juxtaposition next to each other, that's what it means in Second Maccabees chapter 10, verse 6, seem to have been both externally and internally connected. The feast of the dedication or of lights derived from that of tabernacles is duration of eight days. So it's an eight-day festival. You don't have to take off. Uh, uh, it's not a Shabbat, but it should be a, a special day. Even if you're working, it should be a special day of observance. The chanting of the Halal, which is uh, Psalm 113 to 118, and the practice of carrying palm branches. So that's another thing that, you know, you can buy some palm branches and celebrate in your home if you want, Okay. Get creative with it, all right? Um, on the other hand, the rite of the temple illumination may have passed from the Feast of Dedication into the observance of, of that of tabernacles. Tradition had it that when the temple services were restored by Judas Matt, and this is just a tradition, because I've studied this, I don't see anywhere where it says that there was a miracle and there were uh, extra oil was supplied. It doesn't mention that in the Maccabees. So that's another Jewish tradition that perhaps may be a fib or a lie, okay? But... Uh, tradition had it that when the temple services were restored by Judas Maccabees, the oil was found to have been desecrated. Only one flagon was discovered of that which was pure sealed with the very signet of the high priest. The supply proved just sufficient to feed for one day the sacred candlestick, but by a miracle the flagon was continually replenished during eight days till a fresh supply could be brought from 
to Koah. In memory of this, it was ordered the following year that the temple be illuminated for eight days on the anniversary of its dedication. All right, so we don't know whether or not that happened, but the the the, the key thing to understanding this feast is that it helps you to understand what the Maccabees went through. Uh, they were told not to obey the Torah. They were told to obey, I mean, to eat pig meat and so forth. All right, so. Uh, that's what this was all about. So I'm trying to find something else here. Okay. Let's turn also to... Actually, I have another um, book here. It's called... This is written by uh, First Fruits of Zion. It says, Light in the Darkness, Hanukkah, and the Disciples of Yeshua. First Fruits of Zion Anthology. Uh, they recently made this into a booklet, and they revised it, but uh, I still like what they talked about here. All right, so reading a little bit about the Hanukkah story here. Page 10, it says, um, Daniel 11, verse 21, And in this place a despicable person will arise, and it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, on whom the honor of kingship had not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. It says, The events behind Hanukkah happened during the turbulent years of the disintegration of Alexander the Great's Grecian Empire and the rise of the iron-clawed Roman Empire. In those days, the land of Israel found itself buffeted between world powers and sought to use her as a natural land bridge between Africa and Europe and Asia. The people of Israel were the victims of great political upheavals. War was never far from their land. In the meantime, another war was being waged among the people of Israel. Alexander's conquest had introduced the world to Greek language, thought, custom, and philosophy. Greek education had become a universal standard. Western art, science, athletics, literature, and religion had infiltrated the East, and the land of Israel was no exception. That's why we get the concept of athletics today from the Greeks, folks. Many Jews fell in the Olympics, too. Many Jews fell under the sway of Hellenism and embraced the Greek worldview with open arms. Instead of Torah, philosophy. Instead of mitzvah, virtues and aesthetics. Aesthetics. Instead of revelation, reason. Instead of Adonai, the gods of Olympus. The Olympics, remember. Around 200 BCE, the land of Israel was conquered by... Um, the, the Seleucid dynasty as part of their ongoing campaign against the Egyptian-based uh, Ptolemies. In the year 175 BCE, Antiochus IV inherited the Seleucid throne and declared himself Epiphanes. He asserted that he was divine. Behind his back, however, people called him Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus the madman. So... <laughs> Epimines, I guess, which means Antiochus the madman. Antiochus ordered all his subjects to erect and worship statues of himself in their temples, and that's what's going to happen in the future. It's a type of uh, anti-Messiah. Antiochus ordered all his subjects to erect and worship statues of himself in their temples. In addition, he sought to unify his territorial holdings by imposing a strict Hellenism. The Greek language became mandatory. Greek culture and religion was also required. Hellenist Jews 
brought a gymnasium to Jerusalem, and a godless Hellenist Jew named Jason was even appointed as high priest. And by the way, they had Olympics, and they had naked Olympics. They were going around naked and so forth. So that, that's, all, that's, that's what happened. And Antioch has also issued orders forbidding circumcision, Shabbat observance, kosher dyes, and the study of Torah. And that's what's going to happen in the future, uh, the Great Tribulation. In Daniel 11, verse 29 to 30, At the appointed time he will return and come into the south, but, the, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him, therefore he will be disheartened, and he will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant, that's the, the Jewish people that keep the law, and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. In 169 BCE, Antiochus' army suffered a humiliating defeat in their Egyptian campaign with, when Roman intervention ships from Kittim put a halt to their advance. Shamed and angry, Antiochus turned his army back north to return to the land of Israel. When news reached him of civil unrest in Jerusalem, however, he sacked the city and indiscriminately and slaughtered thousands of citizens. During the siege, he entered the holy temple and stole the gold and silver, including the incense altar, the table, and the menorah. After Antiochus had defeated Egypt in the year 143, that's uh, 170 BCE, he returned and went up to Israel and to Jerusalem with a strong force. He instantly invaded the sanctuary and took away the golden altar, the lampstand for the light with all its fixtures, the offering table, the cups and bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, and the golden ornament on the facade of the temple. He stripped off everything and took away the gold and silver and the precious vessels, he also took all the hidden treasures he could find. Taking all this, he went back to his own country after he had spoken with great arrogance and shed much blood. And there was great mourning for Israel in every place they dwelt. That's in First Maccabees chapter 1, verse 20 and 25. And this was only the beginning, the abomination of desolation. And forces from him will rise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. That's what the abomination of desolation is. This is what the abomination of desolation is, in Daniel 11, verse 31. Not long after that, Antiochus issued orders that all nations under his power were to immediately relinquish their various religions and cultures and embrace Greek culture and faith. This was especially problematic for the Torah-based culture and religion of, in, of Judea. In fact, the edicts were specifically aimed at the Jews. The daily sacrifices were discontinued, which will happen in the future again, which means there must be a Jewish temple built. The Jerusalem temple was converted into a temple to Zeus. On the 15th day of Kislev, an image of Zeus was erected in the temple, the abomination of desolation. Ten days later, they began to sacrifice swine to the idol upon the altar of Adonai. Antiochus also issued orders forbidding circumcision, Sabbath observance, culture, diets, and the study of Torah. The text of Maccabees records that those who attempted to live out the Torah paid with their lives, and that's what's going to happen in the future. Uh, those that true believers that will be in the tribulation will have to give their lives up to not receive the mark of the beast. On the 15th day of the month of Kislev in the year 145-168 B.C., the king erected the horrible abomination upon the altar of Holocaust and in the surrounding cities of Judah. They built pagan altars. They also burnt incense at the doors of houses and in the streets. Any Torah scrolls which they found, they tore up and burnt Whoever was found with a scroll of the covenant and whoever observed the Torah was condemned to death by royal decree. That's what's going to happen in the future. So they used their power against Israel, against those who were called each month in the cities. On the 
fifth day of each month, a sacrifice on the altar erected over the altar of Holocaust. Women who had their children circumcised were put to death, in keeping with the decree, with their babies hung from their necks, their families also, and those who had circumcised them were killed. But many in Israel were determined and resolved in their hearts not to eat anything unclean. They preferred to die rather than to be defiled with unclean food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. Terrible affliction was upon Israel. First Maccabees chapter 1, verse 54 to 64. And then it talks about, uh, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Daniel 11, verse 32. Um, the Maccabees. And it goes on with that. So, uh, this this is a very interesting tradition that the Jews uh, started, and it's a good tradition. And so, it's something that should be celebrated, folks. It's something that should be celebrated. And in uh, First Maccabees chapter four, verses fifty-two to fifty-nine, it says, "For eight days they celebrated the dedication of the altar and joyfully offered holocaust." and sacrifices, deliverance, and praise. They ornamented the vacate of the temple with gold crowns and shields. They repaired the gates in the priest's chambers and furnished them with doors. There was great joy among the people now with the, that the disgrace of the Gentiles was removed. And Judah and his brothers and the entire congregation of Israel decreed that the days of the dedication of the altar should be observed with joy and gladness on the anniversary every year for eight days from the 25th day of the month, Kislev. And it says that the eight days were celebrated with gladness, like the Feast of Tabernacles, remembering how not long before, during the Feast of Tabernacles, they had been wandering like wild beasts in the mountains and caves, so bearing wands raised with leaves and fair booths and palms, they offered hymns of praise. So there's another ancient name for Hanukkah, Sukkot of Fire. Just as of the altar fire had been ignited from heaven at the dedication of the altar in the days of Moses and the sanctification of the temple of Solomon. So, too, the heavenly fire was said to have returned in the days of Yehuda Maccabee. It says, whether or not the legends of miraculous fire and miraculous oil are historically reliable is not important here. What is important is to acknowledge that a great miracle happened, therefore a very viable historical fact. The Torah honoring Maccabees won a great victory against the overwhelming odds, light shone in the darkness. So that's what we need to focus on. Okay, and you know, I tried to <laughs> to teach some people that we should be keeping Hanukkah and they just didn't give me a chance to to uh show them why and and in the context of how we worship God, Hanukkah shows us how we shouldn't worship God and it shows us how we should worship God in the context of the temple. Now, here are five reasons why we should celebrate Hanukkah. According to Light in the Darkness, Hanukkah and the Disciples of Yeshua, a First Fruits of Zion anthology. Uh, number one, did you know that Hanukkah is in the Gospels? Hanukkah is not mentioned in the Hebrew Scriptures because the story of Hanukkah happened after the last book of the Tanakh had been written. However, Hanukkah is mentioned in the Apostolic Scriptures. Now, the event that, that caused Hanukkah is mentioned in the Tanakh, in Daniel, chapter 11. But... You know, Hanukkah is not mentioned in, you know, say that we should celebrate Hanukkah. That's not mentioned in Daniel, but it is. The event is talked about in um, Daniel. And then also in Maccabees, which is not the scriptures, but it goes along with the scriptures as far as historical background. It is mentioned that, that it was created and celebrated because of that event that's talked about in Daniel chapter 11. 
However, Hanukkah is mentioned in the apostolic scriptures. Yeshua went to the temple of the Feast of Hanukkah. If Hanukkah matters to Yeshua, shouldn't it matter to us? Now, re realize now, uh, Yeshua, like every any other Jew at that time, was commanded to go just three times a year, to uh, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, to Jerusalem. So, why was he there going to Jerusalem at this time? Obviously, as, as you're correct, it, it, should, it definitely mattered to him. Uh, number two, did you know that Hanukkah is a story of religious persecution? Hanukkah is a story of a religious persecution and standing up for faith in God. Yeshua tells us we can expect persecution, but he also tells us that we must stand firm in our faith. If that's what the story of Hanukkah is about, shouldn't it matter to us? Yes, it should. Number three, did you know that Hanukkah is the festival of the light of the world? Hanukkah is the festival of light. It celebrates the re relighting of the menorah lamp that burned in God's holy temple. In rabbinic terminology, the menorah was called the light of the world. Yeshua said, I am the light of the world, and another time he told his disciples, you are the light of the world. If Hanukkah is the festival of light of the world, shouldn't it matter to us? And I'm going to go over again what the scriptures say about us being lights of the world. That's what Hanukkah represents, us being lights of the world. Number four, did you know that Yeshua talked about Hanukkah? Yeshua talked about Hanukkah. He warned his disciples that the things that happened in the story of Hanukkah would happen again. This is found in Mark chapter 13, verse 13 to 16, and Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 18. To understand what he was saying, his disciples had to know the story of Hanukkah. If Yeshua talked about the story of Hanukkah and his disciples knew the story, shouldn't it matter to us? Number five, did you know that Hanukkah commemorates the dedication of God's temple? Hanukkah means dedication. It is a remembrance of when the Jews rededicated God's holy temple to serve only Adonai. The apostolic scriptures tell us that we are God's temple. If Hanukkah is the festival about the dedication of God's temple, and we are God's temple, shouldn't it matter to us? Yes, it should. Yes, it should. Now, how are we the light of the world, folks? How are we the light of the world? Well, let's turn to what you should have stated here and find out. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Hanukkah is a day not only to remember the persecution that's going to come upon the whole world in the future for those who, who obey the law of God, but it's also days of observance that should show us and teach us to give to people which is a part of worship, all in the context of the temple again. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All right? So that's how the Messiah is a light to the world, and that's how you are a light to the world. Yeshua stated that he was a light to the world. Let's look at those scriptures. 
John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. He's the light of the world. And he came to give to the world. He came, he came to give. John chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, or his parents. It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, he said we, not just him, himself, but he said we. So it includes us. Verse 5 of John chapter 9. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And this was in the context of doing something, of, of doing good works. And many people forget what he stated here in John 14, verse 12. John 14, verse 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. He said, whoever. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And this is, of course, if you truly believe in what he says and do what he says. You will do the exact same works. Do you believe that? That's, that's in red letters. That's what he said. That's what he said. And you, you have to believe what he says. So I hope you understand what light means. Light means doing something, doing good works. If you turn to Luke chapter 4, Christ told you what the context of his mission was all about. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to the earth to serve, not to be served. And most people don't understand that either. Uh, they, they think that being a religious leader is all about being served. But that's, that's not what it's all about. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. Starting in verse 25. But Jesus came, called them. But Jesus called to... to Sorry, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. Verse 26. It shall not be among you, among the assemblies of God or Elohim. It shouldn't be uh, a structure like that, he says. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Verse 27. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how he was the light of the world, folks, and we must be willing to do that as well, if necessary. Again, Luke 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. His mission was a mission to save people, to help people, to care about people, to love people. That's how we're lights to the world, and that's what Hanukkah represents. And for people that run away from observing it, you're not learning how to, you're not reminding yourself that what's the whole purpose of this religion thing anyway? What's the whole purpose of it? Well, what's pure religion? Let's turn to James. Again, James 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Does it say preaching, looking cute on the pulpit? No. Does it say writing religious articles? Does it say selling your books and DVDs? Does it say that? No. It says is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what pure religion is. That's how you are a light to the world or should be. And that's how the Messiah was and continues to be so, through his true believers. Okay. Now, the Lord mentioned something about Hanukkah, the event. Let's go over the scriptures again. And then we'll pick up uh, next week on this and, and we'll focus on uh, how we observe the new moon. That's another the Bible does indicate that we should observe the new moon, but there's some Jewish traditions involved in that. We will talk about that next week. And and uh, perhaps we'll talk about some other Jewish traditions, too, that I didn't have time to mention today. Okay, so let's turn to Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 18. So uh, you should understand what the abomination of desolation is. I described it to you in detail. Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, you can't have a tabernacle or a temple, but in all likelihood there's going to be a temple because of what happened during uh, Maccabees. And during A.D. 70, there was both a temple. So there has to be a temple built for this to occur. All right? Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains or the West Bank and let the one who is on the housetop now go in down to take what is in the house. And let, and let the one who is in the field now turn back to take his cloak. Elias for women who are pregnant for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Shabbat. But then will be great tribulation, such as not, had not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But the sake of the, of the elect, those days would be cut short. So he's talking about this event that's going to occur that is going to be similar to the social conditions that occurred during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. 
which involved a temple being desecrated. And he said there would be a holy place. So there has to be a temple built. This is confirmed in Revelation chapter 11 where it says the temple, God, and the altar. So it's not just going to be an altar. It's also going to be a temple of God, and people are going to be praying in the temple. All right? So a temple will be built uh, despite what other people want to think. All right. Um, so that's what Yeshua stated about that. And what do I have here in Acts here, chapter 21. Right. Acts chapter 20, we're in verse 28, will help you to understand that there's a temple linked with the holy place. Acts chapter 21, verse 28. Acts chapter 21, verse 28. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who was teaching, it was false accusing Shaul or Paul, who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. There we go. Scriptural proof. The temple is linked with the holy place. And it has the word defilement in it. So that's the scriptures interpreting the scriptures. All right? So that, that should erase all this doubt that there will not be a temple in the end time. Then Mark chapter 13, the little time I have here left. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And, you know, I was trying to tell somebody, you're not, you're not saved yet. You have to endure until the end, and then you'll be saved. I tried to explain it to him. I don't know if he understood it or not, but I tried to, using the scriptures. Well, I didn't quote the scriptures, but it's Mark 13, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Saved from what? Eternal death. That's what he's talking about. Mark 13, verse 14, but when you see, so the abomination of desolation is something you have to see. It's not spiritual. It's something you have to see. How can you see spirit, folks? All right? So, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not, now you understand what he's talking about. You understand the background of Antiochus Epiphanes, that he had statues made of himself standing in the temple, and particularly he had the statue of Zeus standing in the temple, and then he sacrificed uh, pig fat, pig abomination on the altar, pig meat, all right? But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he, where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And the lives for women who are pregnant and for those who are running infants, or nursing infants, not running, nursing infants in those days. Verse 18, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there, there will be such tribulation has not been since the beginning of the creation of God, created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chooses or chose, he shortened the days. Okay, so that is, again, the Hanukkah event that is uh, described there. All right, so 
I'm going to be signing off here. Uh, may God bless and keep you. We're going to talk about the new moon next week and, and other uh, Jewish traditions to help us understand that many of the Jewish traditions are okay to keep and it helps us obey and worship the true God. May God bless and keep you and protect you. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse.